Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to 1 Chronicles 29. Probably haven't heard that in a while. We're going to be in the Old Testament. And so as you open up to your Old Testament, you'll see Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, then you'll arrive at 1 Chronicles. Feel free to use the table of contents if you have no idea where it is. That's okay. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13 this morning as we finish up our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. I hope it has been a benefit and a blessing to you. I know it's been a benefit and a blessing to me just to kind of dwell upon uh, phrase by phrase and petition by petition the Lord's Prayer and all that we are asking God to do when we pray. Remember, as Al Mohler said, it only takes about 20 seconds to say the Lord's Prayer, but it takes a lifetime to learn it. And I hope that you uh, have understood that, how deep and rich this prayer is. And so 1 Chronicles 29, 10 to 13. And while you're opening up there, there is a phrase that is deeply embedded into the collective kind of American psyche that many people mistakenly believe is in the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution. It's the phrase, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And there's been some scholarly rumblings that a similar phrase was coined by 14th century Bible translator and early church reformer John Wycliffe in 1384, but it's mostly associated with Abraham Lincoln in his famous Gettysburg Address from November of 1863. When you think about that phrase, even though it's technically not part of our founding documents, the words just sound, quote, so American that they might as well be in the Declaration of Independence. They might as well be in the U.S. Constitution. They, they just sound so American, they might as well be in there, which is why many people think that those words are actually in there. And so in similar fashion, when we look at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, these words are technically not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts of Matthew's gospel, and the early church fathers don't really mention them. If you're reading out of a King James Version, the closing doxology is included, but if you have an NIV or an ESV, if you look at Matthew 6, it's not included. But the second century document known as the Didache actually includes it, and it's one of the most important texts from the early church. It provides insight into ancient teaching on worship services and church order. Actually, Didache is just the Greek word for teaching, and so that's what it is. It's teaching on early worship services. And so the doxology was clearly in use in some form in the early church. And so what are we supposed to think about the traditional ending of the Lord's Prayer, which is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Is it wrong for us to recite it? Thankfully, the answer is no, it's not wrong. Because the language used is just, quote, so biblical that it's hard to kind of separate that out. And the traditional doxology or conclusion doesn't contradict anything in the Matthew 6 text of the prayer. You think about the second petition mentions God, God's kingdom. The third petition talks about God's power to shape our wills to his. The first petition asks for God's name to be honored and glorified in all of creation. And so the conclusion, kind of this concluding doxology, is completely consistent with what has already been mentioned in the Lord's Prayer. In some ways, it's kind of like a little summation sentence at the end. But... The most important reason why it is not wrong to recite the traditional closing doxology is that it actually has its origins in the Old Testament that we're going to look at here in just a moment. 
King David's prayer after the people of Israel freely and sacrificially gave to help build the temple of God. And most scholars think that this prayer marks the climax of King David's reign shortly before his death. You'll notice as you go down into 1 Chronicles, it doesn't take, take long where you reach the, um, David's death. And Solomon is about to be crowned king again after initially serving temporarily as king in the wake of Adonijah's attempted coup. And at this point in his life date, King David is famous, he's powerful, he's wealthy. By any worldly standard, he has it all. He's got everything he could need. But David realized something very important about his position and property that we all should pay close attention to. And so let's look at that this morning. Let's find out. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word this morning. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray for, let's pray for God's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us in love, and we pray this morning that your spirit would be at work, redescribe reality to us, remind us of your sovereign kingdom as you rule and reign over all. Help us to trust you more. Help us to revel in the gospel. Lord, help us to revel in you. We pray and ask these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, so thinking back to that phrase, a government of the people, by the people, for the people, one of the things that always kind of grates against Americans, if we're honest, about, if we're honest with ourselves, is that the, the fact that the kingdom of God is just that. It's a kingdom ruled by a king. And it's not a democracy. It's not a constitutional republic. It is unquestionably ruled by a sovereign monarch who does not rule by the consent of his subjects, but by his own sovereign authority. And again, we see this in our hearts as we read the word and we hear things that we don't like. And God calls us to respond and the fact that God's word does not change. And so if we are in error with it, who needs to change, it or us? Spoiler alert, it's us. And we don't like that, that the king rules and reigns over his kingdom and he calls us to serve him and to walk in his ways and to serve his kingdom. And if we're honest with ourselves, our just kind of individualistic hearts kind of shake our fist at that. What do you mean that there's a kingdom? What do you mean that there's a king and I need to do what he says just because he's sovereign? We don't like that. But thankfully, that's exactly where we live and how we uh, flourish in this world is under the sovereignty of God. And in August of 1943, C.S. Lewis penned an article entitled Equality. And here's what he said. Hence, a man's reaction to monarchy is a kind of test. Monarchy can easily be debunked, but watch the faces. Mark well the accents of the debunkers. These are the men whose taproot in Eden has been cut. Yet even if they desire mere equality, they cannot reach it. 
Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars. Instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. What he's saying there about our hearts is like, we were built to worship. You know, as Bob Dylan famously said, you know, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. You, I, you are going to worship something or someone. It is innately built into you being made in the image of God. So the question is, who or what are you really worshiping? What C.S. Lewis is saying right there is that if we throw off the shackles of this kingdom, our worship is going to be misplaced. And when you hear those words, they were written in 1943, but they might as well have been written yesterday. He says that if we, if we don't honor a king, we're going to honor millionaires, now billionaires, athletes, film stars, prostitutes, gangsters, whatever it is. He said the spiritual nature that we have within our heart, it's going to be served and it's going to eat something. He says, deny it food and it will willingly gobble up poison. And so again, who do we worship? And the line that stuck out to me in that quote was that line where he said, these are the men whose taproot in Eden has been cut. That just kind of jumped out to me because Lewis is saying that we were originally built by God to flourish under his sovereign rule as our good king. Think about Genesis 1 and 2. But in a sinful desire for self-rule, Genesis 3, the original taproot was cut, and instead of worshiping the God who created them, sinful humanity has transferred that worship onto earthly figures, and the results have been disastrous ever since Genesis 3. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. The human heart has changed 0% since the fall. The outside wrapper may look a little different, but deep down at the core of who we are, the heart struggle is still the same. And that's where the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer comes in. We begin in the Lord's Prayer in the preface by calling on our Father who art in heaven. And then there are six petitions, these things that we're asking God to do or to bring about. And then we conclude with another statement about God where he says, for thine, and that's just a fancy word for yours. So for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And in the preface, our Father who art in heaven, we deny our self-sufficiency. We can't do this on our own. We need your fatherly care and love and provision. And in the conclusion, what we're doing is we're actually denying our own self-rule because we're saying, for thine, for yours is the kingdom, not mine. So we deny our self-sufficiency in the preface, and because of that, we ask God in the sixth petition to bring things about, to do things, because we can't do them on our own. But finally, at the end, we say, and guess what? I'm not in charge. You are. Yours is the kingdom. And so the big question this morning is, what do we learn from the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, and how does it point us to the gospel? We've been asking that same exact question about every petition, the preface, and so we're going to finish our sermon series with a very similar question. What do we learn from the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, and how does it point us to the gospel? We're going to see two things. Number one, God's kingdom is glorious. His kingdom is glorious. The second thing, God's provision is gracious. So his kingdom is glorious, his provision is gracious. That's what we're going to see. Let's look at that first point. God's kingdom is glorious. 
So the first thing we mention in the conclusion is, for thine is the kingdom. And again, for yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And it's easy to say this, but it's much harder to actually live it out, isn't it? Because regardless of your belief in God this morning, his kingdom exists and its boundaries cover all of God's creation. It covers everything. His kingdom. He rules and reigns over all. We even mentioned that in our call to worship and we're reminded about that. So whether you believe in God this morning or not, it is an undeniable fact that God as the sovereign rules and reigns over all that he has made. And it doesn't really matter whether you like it or not or whether you believe it or not. It's true. And so there's no room in God's kingdom for a rival kingdom to grow. But functionally, we live our lives as though we are the sovereign rulers of our own little kingdoms. And that is a direct affront to God's sovereign rule. We think about this, we've all heard people talk about or have even said ourselves, well, if I were king or queen for a day, I would do X. You know, if I was in charge, if I had unquestionable rule and sovereignty for a day, here's the changes that I would make. I've said it, you've probably said it too. But when we think about what logically fits in that blank, so if I were king or queen for a day, I would do fill in the blank. The only thing that makes sense in the fill in the blank is mess it up. If I were king or queen for a day, I would mess it up. I would, you would. I don't know about you, but I am grateful that the future does not depend on my own incompetence or it's left to just random chance. I am grateful that he holds the future. Think about these hymns that we sing, that the Lord is in charge and our God rules and reigns and he holds everything in his hands. And, you know, I, I know he holds the future and right. And life is worth the living just because he lives. I mean, we, we sing those songs and we think about this and it is a glorious blessing to live in God's kingdom because his sovereign rule is holy and it's just and his heart is good and kind towards his people, but it is strong and mighty towards his enemies. Our God is gracious, but he's just. His heart is holy and it's good. Unlike any earthly ruler that we could be under, he's holy, holy, holy. And as we have said almost every week, any human ruler is not, not, not. And so he's good and he's just and he's holy. And imagine what life would really be like if we were actually only left with a government by the people for the people, without the fear of God, without the conscience, without the law of God being written on the hearts of the people, as Romans 2.15 tells us. It would be awful, wouldn't it? Because sinful people would be left to their own devices. It would be like driving down the interstate with absolutely no rules, no speed limit, no nothing. You would be fearing for your life every single second because there's no punishment for breaking rules that don't exist. You, your road trips would be absolutely white knuckle from the moment you got in your car until you reached the destination if you even got there. And so we think about what, what would happen if we were left to our own devices in our sin without God's constraining work. Mob rule, might makes right. I mean, fill in the blank there. And David understood this as he prayed in verses 10 and 11. Look at what he said. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in, he in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. I mean, you think David, when he's praying this, he was a, a very wealthy and powerful king on the earth, but even he realized that his kingship was ultimately under a greater authority. And that is a lesson for all of us to remember. If the Lord gives us and places us in a position of influence, whether it be in our family, our jobs, whatever it is, I mean, even in the church, we all have to remember that we are all people under authority. I am under authority. We are all under authority. And it's a good lesson for us. And you see what David is saying here. He's like, I'm not the boss. Yours is the kingdom. All that I have is from you. All that we have is from you. David also understood something else about God's kingdom, that it was really, really powerful. You see there in verse 11, as he goes, he talks about the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. It's this powerful, huge uh, uh, kingdom that you rule and reign over. Remember, as we, as we pray that in the conclusion, for thine is the kingdom and the power. Yours is the power, O Lord. In Matthew 6, the Greek word dunamis is used, which is where we get dynamite from. It's that powerful. Here's what Sproul said. He said, this line of the Lord's Prayer reminds us that God possesses all power in heaven and on earth, power to create, power to save, and power to enable believers to live the Christian life. And you think about this, and that is really good news for us this morning because it means that it's not left up to us. It's not left up to our own striving and and putting all the right, you know, connecting all the dots in the right order and being perfect all the time. It's not left up to us. We serve a powerful God. The means, the method, the message, they're all under the power of God. And they explode into a person's soul by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. It's like dynamite going off in your heart. Some of you that may have had like a very dramatic conversion experience, I'm not downplaying boring conversion stories. Mine's very boring. I praise God for boring testimonies. What it means is that God kept us from absolutely wrecking ourselves. And I say, thank you, Lord. But if you may have had a similar experience or you known someone that has had a similar experience, it's as if a grenade went off. Everything changed overnight. You saw once you, you thought this way and then all of a sudden you realize that there is a God and he's holy and he's powerful and that you're a sinner and you're in big trouble and you need a savior. It's like a bomb going off. It's that powerful work of the Holy Spirit, this regenerating work in the hearts of spiritually dead people. It only can be accomplished by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it because we're dead on the floor. Here goes Dave again, saying we can't save ourselves. It's true. You can't. You're spiritually dead, and it takes the regenerating, powerful work of the Holy Spirit to change a dead heart and to give, a, give you new life. And aren't you glad for a powerful God, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, this dynamite of the soul? It's good news for us this morning. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But for us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. The king is building his kingdom in the hearts of his people. And he's seeking out his own. 
And he's doing everything necessary to draw them powerfully from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13. If you are here and you trust Christ as your savior, that's your story. We once were dead in sin. But Christ, the work of the Spirit, the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working and drawing us and redeeming us and saving us and pulling us to himself while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That's my story. That's your story if you're in Christ. And I am grateful for a powerful God. You think about the work that is ongoing but while we wait for the Lord. He continues to make his enemies his children. He continues to make spiritually dead people live. He continues to build his glorious kingdom until that day that is fixed in the future when the kingdom will descend and every knee will bow. Why? Why? For his own glory. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's why. For his own glory from everlasting to everlasting, his reign will never end. That's what David said. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above, above all. And O Lord, if this is your kingdom, just by default, it is an eternal kingdom. For it's from everlasting to everlasting. Again, that's good news for us. But this should simultaneously humble us and reassure us. It should bow our proud heads. For thine is the kingdom. It's not mine. That should bow our proud heads. But it should also strengthen our weak knees. Because we have a good God who rules and reigns over his kingdom. And his heart is good. And he's powerful enough to do all that he said. And all of his promises are true and they will come to pass because he said that will. Psalm 73, 25 to 26. The psalmist write, Asaph, who, who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. King David knew this himself. Do you? Do you? Do you know my king? Do you know this kingdom? Or are you still trying to be the little king and queen of your own little universe and working on your own self-salvation project? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Do you know him as your king and your savior and your Lord and your shepherd? Or is he just some kind of like little backup warranty plan that you have on your own life in case your plans fail? Don't worry, I have this as a backup plan. King Jesus will not be mocked. His kingdom, there is no room for a rival kingdom in the kingdom of God. All these rival kingdoms will be dealt with in the end. And so I, as a minister in the gospel, plead with you to give up your own little mini kingdom and to bow the knee to King Jesus and to rest in his sovereign care and his mercy. Your plans are not going to work out the way that you think they are. History is littered, littered. The dustbin of history is full with failed many saviors and kingdoms. There is only one who rules and reigns, and it's not you. It's not me. And I'm okay with that. Do you know my king? 
Do you know his kingdom? Are you a part of that kingdom? Chance for all of us to just consider where we are, to consider how we stand with the Lord. Passages like this are a good reminder. They kind of grab us by the scruff and they stare us in the face and say, do you really think you're in charge? It's a fool's errand. Bow the knee to King Jesus, run to him, rest in the gospel. Our response as those redeemed by God should be one of praise and trust. Our God reigns and he has promised to fully redeem everything. And the cross and the empty tomb remind us that Christ's work of redemption is done. And now we wait for his glorious return or, if he sees fit to tarry, his gentle call home as our shepherd. Well done, good and faithful. But either way, the king is returning. Any superlative should be directed at God, not us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. One of the five bumper stickers of the Reformation was soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And that's why he says salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as revealed in the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Anytime you put me and I into that equation, you've missed it. You've missed it. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Here's what DeYoung said in his helpful little book. All perfection belongs to God and God alone. He is a mighty and generous king, a powerful potentate, and a glorious father without beginning or end. And this is really hopeful for us who trust in Christ, that even in the midst of trials and suffering, it's hopeful for us because both in good times and in bad times, his provision is glorious. Second point, much shorter than the first. So his kingdom is glorious. His provision is gracious in our second point. Look again at the prayer David prayed at verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Notice it's in yours. David is praying, it's not in mine, it's in yours, O Lord. All that we have belongs to the Lord, and he's generous with his people. Look, he says, riches and honor come from you. Your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. James 1.17, again, we're going to start James next week. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is every good and perfect gift comes directly from your hand. And you might be thinking, yeah, right. How do we know that God is going to provide for us like that? What can we point to? to know that he really is gracious and generous with his people. How do we know when he says, I'm going to take care of you? I am going to provide for you. What do we look to to know that he is that generous? Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know that God's going to be faithful to graciously and generously take care of us and provide for us, for his people? Because he did not even spare his own son to redeem those who were lost, the sheep that had gone astray. He gave his own son so that they might be redeemed and justified. 
Is this on? We look to God the Father's provision of His Son. We say, that's why I know that He's going to be that good. That's why I know that He is going to be faithful to His promises. Because when the rubber hit the road, He was not even afraid to spare His own Son. And the Son went willingly as a sheep led to the slaughter so that you could be redeemed by His blood and His righteous record could be transferred to you because you could not do it on your own. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, and that's the fastball down the middle. We look to Christ. We rest in Christ. We trust in Christ. It's all we have. I say the same thing every week, don't I? Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. Look to Christ That is the sign of God's faithfulness to you, that He gave His only Son. Isn't that good? Notice the sign of God's provision for you is not your own righteousness. It's not your own perfection. It's not you doing anything. You are a passive recipient of what God has done. And monergistically, not synergistically, monergistically, He has poured His grace out upon you and transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to the praise of His glorious grace. (laughs) That's the gospel. It's that brutally simple. It's that simple. Just dwell upon that. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave all things for you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, made alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Isn't that good news? Because God has been generous with us. You think about the Lord's Prayer, it reminds us of two things. You think about the bookends of the Lord's Prayer, you got the preface and the conclusion, right? We, the, the prayer reminds us by bookends of the glory and the generosity of God. Because God has been generous with us, we are called to be generous with others in this world for the glory of God alone. Let me tell you a quick story. Almost done. Marquis de Lafayette was a French officer who provided invaluable assistance to George Washington and the struggling American army. And after the war was over, he returned to France and resumed his life as a farmer of his many estates. In 1783, the harvest was a terrible one and there were many who suffered as a result. Lafayette's farms were unaffected by the devastating crop failures, and one of his workers offered what seemed to be good advice to Lafayette. The bad harvest has has raised the price of wheat. This is the time to sell. After thinking about the hungry peasants in the surrounding villages, Lafayette disagreed and said, No, now is the time to give. We who have been recipients of the generosity and graciousness of the Lord... Now is not the time to hoard that for yourself. Now is the time to give it. Trust the sovereign king and go tell somebody else about the gospel. Quit being a fraidy cat. Trust the sovereignty of God. He can take your messed up bumbling and stumbling by the work of the Holy Spirit and make that grenade go off if it is the time. And he is pleased to possibly use you. Quit being a scaredy cat. You don't save anybody, but God does, and he chooses by his own grace and mercy and his foreordination to use weak vessels like us. I would love to see this church double in size because we have been faithful to go share the gospel. I would love to have that baptismal up front and use it every week as we see new people brought into the kingdom by the power of the Spirit. 
I'm not the only one that can do that. I'm just one guy. But you've got to trust the Lord enough to go out and share, your go- share the gospel with others. We are called to do and be about the work of the Great Commission. That's us. We go and do it. I'm not fussing at you. I'm encouraging you. The sovereign God of the universe will use it for his own glory. If you step out in faith, every single one of you has someone who needs to hear the gospel and you think about your social circles. Trust Christ and go share the gospel with them. It's brutally simple. Throw the fastball. Trust Christ, look to Christ, rest in Christ. That's it. It's brutally simple. Do you trust the sovereign God of the universe and the message and the method and the means by which we go? Go trust the Lord. As we close our study on the Lord's Prayer, let's remember all the things that are packed into this 20-second prayer that takes a lifetime to learn. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have a loving Father in heaven. We ask for His name to be hallowed, His kingdom to come in the hearts of people, His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask for his provision of daily bread, his forgiveness for our own sins and the strength to forgive others, and his protection against the schemes of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We praise God for his kingdom, his power, and his glory, which will last forever. In Christ, we pray this prayer with the fellowship of the saints across the globe and throughout time with with complete agreement, confidence, and trust in the Lord. And how do we close it? For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. What? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sovereign mercy. Thank you that it is your kingdom, not ours. Father, thank you that you are in charge and we're not. Father, if we were left to our own devices, we would make an absolute mess of it. But Lord, you are gracious and kind and just and powerful and mighty. And Father, you are faithful to your promises. Father, help us to trust you and trust your power. Help us to go out and to share the gospel, to trust you, to trust your word, to trust the method and the means as we rest in your sovereign hand. Help us to trust the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us to lean into you. Lord, help us just to enjoy and swim in the hope of the gospel. Lord, that you sought us out while we were at our worst and that sovereignly by your hand, you rescued us from us throwing ourselves off the cliff into sin and hell. And by your grace and mercy, you have grabbed us and changed us and brought us and transferred us into the kingdom of your glorious light and of your glorious son. And we thank you for that. Lord, we're still going to mess up. We're still going to fail. We're still going to falter. But Lord, we are grateful that you are faithful even when we are faithless, that our hope rests not in our own performance. It doesn't rest in how perfect and good and holy we are. It rests in the object of our faith, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we live and dwell under the banner of it is finished. And so help us to rest in that. Thank you that your kingdom and your power and your glory is forever and ever and ever. Amen.